He's had the Midas touch with horses the public dismissed in big races. So why not forever unbridled in the Breeders' Cup Distaff? We'll talk with trainer Dallas Stewart on this show, plus how thoroughbred racing unwittingly landed a trailblazing man in Las Vegas. Wait until you hear about Hank Greenspun's amazing career, and his son's deep roots in Sin City will also help us put the recent tragedy there into perspective. It's all straight ahead on this edition of In the Gate. They're in the gate. They're in the gate. In the gate. They're in the gate. It's a head-bobbing finish! This is In The Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well, which services the iTunes Store and TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone that you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. He's made a name for himself by turning long shots into contenders. Dallas Stewart trained back-to-back Kentucky Derby runners-up who went off at more than 30 to 1 odds. Golden Soul in 2013 and Commanding Curve in 2014. The next year, Stewart struck in the Preakness with Tale of Verve, who at a mere 28 to 1, finished second in the mud to the great American pharaoh. This year, it wasn't a triple crown race, nor was his horse really a slouch, but in the personal ensign at Saratoga, Dallas Stewart pulled a notable upset nonetheless. Forever unbridled is still last. She has not been let loose yet, and she is going strongly. She's coming three wide here. And Mike Smith and Songbird turn for home in front. Forever unbridled is coming down the center of the racetrack. Songbird with a 16th to go. Forever Unbridled runs at her. Songbird inside. Forever Unbridled on the outside. A dramatic finish. Forever Unbridled has defeated Songbird in the personal ensign. Forever Unbridled did it. That was the seventh win in 16 starts for Forever Unbridled, whose next start will come in the Breeders' Cup Distaff. She's sure to command decent odds there, too. Songbird's been retired due to an injury she suffered in the loss to Forever Unbridled, but waiting at the Breeders' Cup are the two leading contenders for three-year-old Philly champion, Abel Tasman and Elate. But bet against Dallas Stewart with a live long shot at your own risk. And we welcome trainer Dallas Stewart for the first time here to win the gate. Let's start with Forever Unbridled. After a third in last year's distaff, you gave her quite a bit of time off. She didn't resurface until mid-June. What was going on with her? Well, she had had uh, she had had surgery after the Breeders' Cup. She had a little chip taken out of the ankle. She didn't start back until May. She came back. She was that wind star early, like April. And then she came into us like May, early May, right after the Derby. And then we got her ready, and she she won her first race back in June. Now, that win in the personal ensign that we played followed a win in the, that Fleur de Lis race at Churchill, so she's two for two this year. What is different about her this year as compared with last year? Yeah, I mean, she's just bigger and stronger. And, you know, she was, she's always been a very nice filly, so um, she's just bigger and stronger, and 
and she's very healthy, you know, right now. You know, like with, with major athletes, when they're healthy and everything's going good for them, you know, that's when they, they do their best running, do their best performance. Now, last year, you ran forever unbridled in the Bell Dame at Belmont in between the personal ends and the Breeders' Cup. Not the case this time. The Breeders' Cup will be just her third start of the year. Now, we all know that Wayne Lucas was your mentor, and he was not exactly known for leaving horses in the barn. So what was the thought here? Well, the thought was that she won a race to Fleur de Lis off a seven-month layoff and did it quite nicely. So we waited 10 weeks. We went to the personal engine, and she beat a champion named Songbird. So it's 11 weeks from now to the Breeders' Cup. So we just didn't feel like she needed another race to get ready uh, for the Breeders' Cup. We just feel like the added time and the freshness and the healthiness that she has right now, just keep all that together. Her workouts are good. She worked in third 113 at Churchill. So we feel like she can stay tight and also be fresh at the same time, ready to go. Dallas Stewart has one Breeders' Cup win. It was in the race we're discussing, the Distaff, back in 2001. And it's Spain in front, into the stretch. Spain, the defending champion, is there by two. Unbridled Elaine is coming with the late run. But Miss Spain in front, here comes Unbridled Elaine with giant strides. in the final strides. And the horse unbridled Elaine beat that day. Spain was trained by the aforementioned Wayne Lucas. What did it feel like to beat him in a race of that magnitude? Well, I was just, I mean, wasn't so much as beating him, but it was a $2 million race, so it felt good to get a good payday. I needed the money. <laughs> We're chatting with trainer Dallas Stewart here on In the Gate. He'll send out forever unbridled the next month's Breeders' Cup distaff. Wayne Lucas is still going strong with a promising two-year-old sporting chance who won the hopeful barely. Now as a minor injury, will miss the Breeders' Cup, but still, of course, has a chance for the Spring Classics. How amazing is it that your mentor, Wayne Lucas, is still getting it done at age 82? Yes, absolutely. He's out there working hard every morning. He's as positive and into his job as he always was and always is, and it's uh, great to see him out there and getting it done still. So very proud of him. Now, Lucas had several clients, of course, every trainer does, but he had a couple, maybe three big ones. Eugene Klein, owner of the then San Diego Chargers, Bob and Beverly Lewis, W.T. Young, and it seems like having that one or two big clients is becoming rarer these days. But you've had a long-standing relationship with the owner of Forever Unbridled, Charles Fipke, who's been a guest on this show before. Different sort of character. What's been the key to maintaining that relationship over the last decade or so with him? I mean, he just loves the game, and, you know, he does all the matings with his breeding, and, you know, he works hard at, you know, trying to give us nice horses to train. I don't know. It's just it's, it's great to work for him. I'm just happy that I, I worked for him for a while and hope it continues, and I'm glad he, I'm glad he kept this filly in training for another year. We started this show talking about your near misses in big races. 
commanding curve, golden soul, etc. That's obviously a glass half empty, glass half full situation. What kind of motivation, if any, do they give you? Yeah, I mean, I want to get it done. You know, been you know, like you said, second in the Derby twice, second in the Preakness twice. You know, second in the Whitney, the Woodward. You know, all those are great, great races to win. You know, so we just keep get up early every morning and work hard and I enjoy what I do. I've got a great staff. People show up and work hard for me. Great owners to work for. Like you said, I've been with Mr. Fifty a long time. I've been with I've been with West Point Thoroughbreds for over 20 years. It's just a lot of good clients that I work for. Mr. and Mrs. Benson. So it's uh, it's a good group to train for. Yeah, let's uh, finish by asking where uh, where do we stand with uh, the Benson Stakes horses? Well, we got uh, Tom's ready. That's still running. He's he's made about nine hundred thousand. Probably run him a couple more times this year. Sounds like he's going to go to the breeding shed. That's the basic plan, I think. Um, got three two-year-olds for him that are a little bit late getting going, but we're getting them there. So uh, we'll see. Great people to train for. And, uh, you know, some nice people from New Orleans, for sure. Well, we wish you the best of luck with them and, of course, with Forever Unbridled and the Breeders' Cup this staff. Thanks so much for a few minutes, sir. Anytime. Thank you. We're going to take a short break here on In the Gate, but when we come back, some perspective on the tragedy in Las Vegas from a man whose very presence in the town is owed to a chance encounter with thoroughbred racing. Don't go away. Welcome back to In the Gate. Mandalay Bay Casino in Las Vegas, the site of the recent mass shooting, sits at the southern end of Las Vegas Boulevard, known commonly as the Strip. If you go a mile or so north of Mandalay Bay, to the other end of the Strip, you get to the West Gate, formerly known as the Las Vegas Hilton. Adjacent to the West Gate is the Las Vegas Country Club, which nowadays is a golf course. But six decades ago, thoroughbred racing was staged on that 480 acres of land for 13 whole days. Yes, in September of 1953, a promoter from New York named Joseph Smoot, who had conned 8,000 stockholders into investing more than $2 million to build Las Vegas Park, unveiled his new palace. The opening had been delayed, and the track wasn't quite finished, but the promise the place held convinced some of the top racing operations in the country to ship horses to Vegas, including Calumet Farm, which had campaigned two Triple Crown winners in the previous decade, Whirl Away and Citation. Las Vegas Park was open for three days, featuring long lines and constant malfunctions from the tote board and the betting machines at the $50 and $500 betting windows. If you're going to upset any customers, don't upset the high rollers. So the track closed for two weeks, and reopened in October for 10 more racing days. All of them were money losers, according to the track president. Las Vegas Park reopened in 1954 for quarter horse racing, but that only lasted seven weeks due to poor attendance. And that was it. The land was sold shortly thereafter. But what of promoter Joseph Smoot? Well, first of all, How do you think he got from New York City to Las Vegas? He didn't have a ride, so like everything else he did, Smoot hustled. 
The driver was his lawyer's partner, a man named Hank Greenspun. Once they got there, Smoot and Greenspun went their separate ways. Joseph Smoot and Las Vegas Park were essentially the template for the legendary Mel Brooks movie that would come out a decade or so later, The Producers. Let's hustle as much money as we can, come up with the worst idea imaginable, have it flop right out of the gate, and take the money for ourselves. Now Smoot and two associates weren't exactly in a Nazi kick line singing Springtime for Hitler, but they were eventually charged with embezzling the money and using roughly $500,000 for their own purposes. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, five hundred grand in 1953 would be about $4 million in today's money. Smoot died just a year later in 1955, still under indictment. As for Hank Greenspun, well, here's where it really gets interesting, as if everything you just heard wasn't interesting enough. Hank Greenspun fell in love with the blue skies, tall mountains, and swinging door saloons of Las Vegas in 1946. He eventually moved from law to journalism, founding the Las Vegas Review-Journal newspaper, which still exists today. Greenspun became as much of the fabric of the town as Elvis, Wayne Newton, and Celine Dion. Through his pulpit, the newspaper, Greenspun aggressively challenged the people in power in Nevada politics— and on a bigger scale, he was the only journalist ever to confront publicly Senator Joseph McCarthy of Red Scare fame. There's a lot more to tell about Hank Greenspun's amazing story and his family's deep personal and professional connection to Las Vegas. So who better to put the recent events there into perspective than Hank Greenspun's son, Brian, who is the current owner and publisher of another paper in Las Vegas, the Las Vegas Sun, and we welcome Brian Greenspun to In the Gate. Let's start with the current news. Given your family's deep roots in Las Vegas, how do you put what happened into some kind of perspective? I think I, like like most people here, have, have actually had a whole lot of trouble gaining some perspective on this because I don't think there's a person in this town who isn't more than one degree away from someone who was shot or killed. You know, you, you get up every morning, you know all the issues, you know most of the issues that are going to come your way, and you know that it's Las Vegas, and you're a target from time to time from, from some really bad people from around the world, but this is probably not one that you thought about. You know, you think about airplanes, you think about that, but a guy with, you know, all those weapons and automatic weapons, taking a room and just indiscriminately firing on people, he has absolutely no reason to want to kill or no same reason to want to kill. And it's hard to find perspective. And, and, and the only way to get perspective is say, hey, we live in a country that allows this to happen continually and often, and we refuse to do something about it. Whatever that something is, we refuse to even talk about doing something about it. And so, you know, I, I can't imagine this is the United States of America. We're a country, and Las Vegas is a city that, you know, always handles its issues. And so if you're asking me for perspective, I don't have one. I didn't grow up in a third-world country that allows other people to oppress us. And, you know, I'm having trouble with that, with finding perspective, just like I'm sure all those poor parents. Hook, you know, there's no way to 
put that in any kind of perspective. You're not supposed to give your children up to some wacko because other people are hung up on some ideologies that make absolutely no sense in today's world. Oh, don't get me started on that. <laughs> well, the interesting thing is, you know, your father had a reputation as a journalist crusader type. What do you think he would have said if he were around today? Well, whatever he would have said, he would have been saying it loudly. He would have been saying it often, <laughs> and he would have been holding and he would have been holding elected people accountable. Now, in Las Vegas, there's no one to hold to account unless the account is how fabulous they have been responding. This town, I couldn't be more proud of, of this city than the way everybody at every level has responded to this tragedy, right? So if you ask me what I think my, my father would have been doing, he'd have been going after the president and starting there and not ending until he had something done where the president at least acknowledged that this country as a whole has a responsibility and we are shirking it. Just how he would have done it, I don't know. I wish I had that talent that he had. And your father helped smuggle weapons for an underground movement in the Middle East that was fighting to establish the state of Israel. It was convicted in federal court of it, but President John Kennedy eventually pardoned Hank Greenspun. How does that whole story shape your view of what's going on here? Well, I hope you're not drawing comparisons in terms of the, the quality of the effort. You know, on the one hand, you have some person who's obviously some kind of nutcase uh, who'd planned this thing for a while, who indiscriminately fires on people who were doing absolutely no harm to him. On the other hand, you had a fellow who risked his life and his future and his family's future on the idea of creating the, Jew, uh, the Jewish state of Israel in, in the Middle East, and all they had was pitchforks and rakes and shovels to fight the, you know, Arab armies from six or eight or ten different countries, armed to the teeth. And so what he did was find weapons so they could at least fight back and keep from being annihilated. One is an act in self-defense of others, and the other was a brutal, vicious act of offense to others. So there's no comparison one to the other at all, in my mind. Brian Greenspun, the owner and publisher of The Las Vegas Sun, joins us here on In the Gate. Your family ended up in Las Vegas in the first place because of the promoter, Joseph Smoot, who basically used the building of a thoroughbred racetrack to set up what we would now call a Ponzi scheme. And your father wrote in his autobiography that Smoot knew the track wouldn't work. Now, we mentioned your father had a reputation as a journalist crusader. How did he not alert the public to what this whole racing operation was? My father was a lawyer after, after his service in World War II. And as a lawyer, he came out to Las Vegas with this character, Joe Smoot, who said he wanted to build a racetrack. And I think is the way my dad used to explain it. He was the only guy, the only lawyer in the firm who had a car. You know, New York, no one had cars. So <laughs> right. he, he was assigned to drive out to Las Vegas with this guy, Smoot. My dad didn't know him from a hot rock, but I imagine he got to know him well between New York and Las Vegas in, you know, the fall of 1946. I guess by the time they got out there, Smoot had my dad convinced that they should build a race. Or, you know, the racetrack was a good idea in Las Vegas. And then my dad shows up and sees what Las Vegas is. You know, Las Vegas had one or two tiny little hotels, 
the flamingo was under construction and the rest was dirt. So anybody with half a brain knew that it was probably a bit early for a racetrack. And within a very short period of time, Smoot's, Smoot's idea of a racetrack evaporated for whatever he was trying to do. My dad, went, my dad was in Las Vegas and said, what a great place to live. Got my mom to get on a train and come out to Las Vegas, pregnant with me. She had my little sister at that time. Just came over as a war bride from Ireland and showed up in the middle of the Las Vegas desert in 1946. There were barely 15,000 people here in the entire county. So it wasn't until four years later that my dad got into the newspaper business where his, he then viewed his responsibility to tell people the truth about what is and what isn't. I, I don't think Smoot and, and my dad lasted you know, a month after Smoot got out here. Well, you mentioned the flamingo, and there's another interesting, colorful side of your father's history. I mean, the flamingo, of course, was built by the gangster Bugsy Siegel, maybe you've heard of him, who had been struggling with that operation, which opened the day after Christmas in 1946. And he closed it quickly in order to upgrade the building and upgrade its marketing. And guess who Bugsy Siegel hired to help with the marketing, which is just unbelievable. How did your father describe working for Bugsy Siegel? How much, Barry, how much time do you have on this program? Because I can go all night. Well, there's really no limit to a podcast. That's the beauty of it. Uh, you're getting into some really great storytelling, if, if you have time for it. What, what I will tell you is Bugsy Siegel, when my dad showed up here, Siegel was, you know, toward the end of building his hotel, the casino part of his hotel, the hotel part was still under construction and wouldn't be finished for another two or three months, let's say. So you're right. Siegel opened the hotel around Christmas of 1946. I tell people I got here two weeks before Siegel opened the Flamingo. And he opened it, and it was open for, you know, a few days. Could be two weeks, could be a week, but sometime in that time frame. Uh, I think Jimmy Durante... And Rosemarie opened the hotel, opened the casino at that time. Uh, they played for a few days. Everybody went back to L.A. and Siegel closed the place and basically said, I'm going to wait until the hotel rooms are finished so I can actually put people in them. So that was in, I think, March of 47 that he reopened. In the interim period of time, I told you my dad got into the publishing of a magazine called Las Vegas Life. And he wrote a story about this guy Benjamin Siegel, who was building this beautiful hotel way out at the end of high, what was then called Highway 91. Today it's called the Las Vegas Strip. It was practically a dirt road from Las Vegas to Los Angeles. And he wrote in glowing terms, this man who was going to hire all these people, this beautiful hotel, blah, 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 blah. He referred to him as Benjamin Siegel, a man who lives on the periphery of polite society. <laughs> well, someone else would have someone else would have said he's an underworld gangster, right? So he writes that story. A week or two later, my dad is down at the Review Journal, the paper you mentioned, which was the only paper at the time that was printing his magazine, and uh, Siegel was there. My dad didn't know Siegel, and they were, one was going up the stairs, one was going down the stairs, and they banged into each other because neither one moved to the side. They just banged into each other. <laughs> Siegel, went, Siegel went into his jacket, his best part of his jacket, reaching for his gun. 
Siegel, with his hand on his gun, said, who are you? So my dad stuck his hand out. He said, my name's Hank Greenspun. And he looks at him and he says, you're Mr. Siegel. And Siegel says, Greenspun, you're the guy who wrote that beautiful article about me. He sounds like Trump. He says, <laughs> he, took his hand, he took his hand off his gun. He shook my dad's hand. He said, you're the only man who's ever done this to me who's going to live. And with that, <laughs> he bought the back page of my father's magazine for the rest of the year, paid cash for it right there on the spot. He had that kind of cash in his pocket and basically saved my dad's fledgling magazine. So he, he opens and closes his flamingo. He's going to reopen it two, three months later, and he needs a publicity director. Well, yeah, who do you think he hires? But that guy who wrote that great article about me. And that's how my dad wound up working at the Flamingo Hotel come March of 1947. Shortly thereafter, a month or so, Siegel's killed. And, of course, everyone gave my dad credit for having him killed because right after he was shot to death, the Flamingo took off. Everybody in the country wanted to come see the place that Bugsy built, and the place became a hit. So that's how that story happened. What he did ultimately, I'm, I'm sitting in this beautiful city that has, that has come together after this most tragic, tragic of events. And this town wouldn't be here and wouldn't be as, as vibrant and as optimistic and as capable uh, as it is today were it not for my father and what he did in the 50s and 60s and 70s to help shape this city. Now, this is a thoroughbred horse racing podcast. I mean, have you ever thought about the fact that it was thoroughbred racing in one way that is responsible for your family's long history in Las Vegas, yet thoroughbred racing lasted there for a grand total of 13 days? Well, that's not quite accurate, Barry. We've, there have been a number of fits and starts of thoroughbred horse, horse racing in Las Vegas over the many decades. There was a fellow named Joe W. Brown. If you go to what is now the Westgate Hotel that used to be the Las Vegas Hilton, the road that runs right behind it between the Las Vegas Country Club golf course and, and what is now the Westgate is called Joe W. Brown Boulevard or Joe W. Brown Road. Joe W. Brown opened on that entire piece of property where the Hilton, where the Westgate is, where the Las Vegas Country Club is, he opened Joe W. Brown Racetrack. And that was sometime in the 60s. Now, it lasted more than 13 days, but not a whole lot more than 13 days, maybe in a couple of two, three years. And then not long after that, a guy named Joe Wells, who was an oil guy, I believe, from Texas, and an owner of the Thunderbird Hotel, opened on a vacant piece of land right behind the old Thunderbird Hotel. Thunderbird Downs, that's what it was. It was called Thunderbird Downs, mostly quarter horses, and, you know, maybe some thoroughbreds. I think it was like a half a mile or five-eighths of a, a you know, length track. And that was up for two or three years. And I got to go to all, each of those. And then in the early 80s, the Funk family from Arizona came up and built a dog track. And they had a one-year moratorium to run their dog track, and, uh, after which they had to build a thoroughbred racetrack in the same location. It never happened because the dog track didn't make it. But those were four. Those would have been four, but clearly there were three separate attempts at horse racing in Las Vegas. So 
it's you're right. It, it's a short history, but it is a a multiple story of short. It's, let's say multiple short stories of thoroughbred history in Las Vegas. Well, I know when I greet people at a funeral, I always say, let's meet again under better circumstances. And I'm sorry that it was the Las Vegas shooting that brought us together here. But I hope we get to do this again under better circumstances, because this is a fascinating life that your father had. And it's just wonderful that we get to share it. And thank you so much for doing so. You're very welcome, and, and thank you for the, the, the warm thoughts. Uh, yeah, uh, under better circumstances next time. Our thanks to Brian Greenspun and to Dallas Stewart. I thought I'd seen the best Phillies the sport had ever known in Rachel Alexandra and Zenyatta. I'm a little too young for Ruffian, but come on, Rachel and Big Z? This decade, though, great Phillies, there are a lot of after Rachel and Zenyatta each won Horse of the Year honors, Hava de Grace completed a filly and mare trifecta. Then came the Great Beholder, who was bestowed Eclipse Awards in three different categories by the selectors. Two years ago, a three-year-old filly named Found beat older males in the Breeders' Cup turf, her fourth race in six weeks. And that included a transatlantic trip to run at Keeneland. I thought the filly wave had reached its peak. But what a year it's been for the three-year-old filly Enable, who in the King George this summer beat older males. She destroyed the best from Europe in their biggest race, the Ark. Against her, the group of fillies we've mentioned pales. You can get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well, which services the iTunes Store and TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone that you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And you can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. That's In The Gate for this week. I'm Barry Abrams. We'll see you next time.